You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. All right, we have another exciting episode for you this week, although this one is maybe a little different than what we would normally do. We're kind of taking it back to the basics. It's really good sometimes to just return to those foundational things, those assumptions that you have and those that you gain when you become a Christian. And for many of us who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, we tend to sometimes forget where we came from. And we even forget just the simplicity of the gospel, and we forget what we mean when we talk about certain concepts. So the concept that I want to discuss with you on the Bible Nerd Podcast today is salvation. Is salvation. And, and most importantly, I want to deal with this, this basic question. How can I know I am saved? How can I know I'm saved? Without a doubt, this is one of the most important questions that can be asked. I I always go back to this C.S. Lewis quote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. And I say that a lot, and I, I often go back to that quote a lot because I think it's just so true and so telling. When you consider Christianity, considering Christ, you are really considering the question, the resurrection of Jesus and um, the person of Jesus. You're considering the question that informs how you will answer just about all other questions. Because even the most minute things you do as a Christian for the glory of God. And so it changes everything. So it's the most significant question, I think, that could be asked. And yet, it might be the most basic question that we could ask. I mean, this is the foundation. This is where you start in terms of how can I know I'm saved? I mean, when you are when you are jumping into a relationship with Christ, this is the question that you're asking. And what's interesting about the question is it's actually also quite complex. You know, there are words that we have to define, there are concepts that need to be explored, and there are beliefs that need to be espoused before you can really have a satisfactory answer to this question. How can I know I'm saved? So let's look at a biblical answer to this question. And I know there might be a temptation here to say, well, I know this already. I'm just going to skip this one. I'm just going to get rid of this. You know, we'll we'll wait until we'll see what he comes out with next week. You know, that look, I, I just want to encourage you to listen through this. It may be a good time for you to reflect honestly on your answer, just to think back to where God has brought you from and what kind of things God is doing in your life in this place. So this is more of a, you know, a practical application kind of thing, but we're going to do it from a biblical studies angle. We're going to look and see what the Bible has to say about this and then um, 
you know, you can take that to apply it to your life. And also, you can take this concept and apply it to others when you're teaching them or instructing them or even when you're leading others to the Lord. It might help to explain things. And this will be, I think, a way of doing that. So what does it even mean to be saved? That's maybe where we should start. You know, most of us grow up with this notion that there is a salvation event that takes place in our lives. And so you might ask, well, do I still believe that today? I've been a Christian for a long time. Uh, well, you know, I mean, over 25 years now, um, I, th- I think 26 years to be exact, I have been a Christian. I'm 30 years old today. I was saved at the age of four years old, and I truly believe I was. And and so is there is there this event that takes place? Do I still believe that kind of thinking? And my answer to that would be yes but it's complicated. <laughs> yes, but it's complicated. Ephesians chapter 1, verse um, uh, verses 3 and 4, seem to describe what this event looks like. It says this, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed, with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, Paul opens his letter here to the church at Ephesus with sort of a theological treatise. He's underscoring what Jesus has accomplished, and he's actually going to go on to draw some conclusions about a life of proper faith and practice for the Ephesian church. Now, in this passage, this uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, that we just read, Paul actually describes that once one um, trusts or places their hope in Christ— after hearing the gospel and believing, then they are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And this acts kind of as a, a down payment on their inheritance. Okay? So you are at a moment in time when, I guess you could almost say, when it clicks for you. <laughs> um, and, and you then decide to place your trust in Jesus Christ, not only um, in the sense of some intellectual assent that you merely believe in him, but that you trust that what he did will accomplish for you what he claims it would. Once that happens, according to the Apostle Paul, you are then sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, meaning um, you are given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is a person of the Godhead, and he is the person through which the Godhead does personal work directly in your life. And that um, that sealing acts as your down payment. That word earnest, um, we use the, the phrase here, earnest of our inheritance. That word earnest is like a down payment. That's what that means. So, in other words, what God is saying is, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and this is going to act as a 
as a sort of down payment. Once you know, once you have the Holy Spirit, then you know that you are sealed until the day of redemption. Okay, so that is um, what Paul is teaching here. And I think it's absolutely beautiful because what it is, it's the reconciliation between God and man. It's God's rescue via the work of Jesus on the cross of a sinner and then God's sealing that person for the final day of redemption. Now, uh, there's a natural question that kind of arises at this point, right? Because we say, okay, well, at this point, maybe we say, you are saved. And we start to use, you know, some of this Christianese language. So what happens now? Well, the question that arises is, what are we saved from? The answer to this, I think, is multifaceted. And uh, certainly there are other questions that arise. I mean, you know, are we saved from Satan? Are we saved from our flesh? Are we saved from God himself? Well, Scripture can actually be brought to bear in support of all of the above. And yet, a mere reflection on the nature of the world also provides a sufficient answer. And here is what it is. Now, this might sound a little strange when I say this, but I'm going to try to support my point here with the thinking of Greg Kokel. All right, now here's the answer. We all know the world is broken, okay? We all know the world is broken, and this is why we need salvation. All right, here's Greg Kokel on this point. Quote, none of us can long avoid the gnawing sense of guilt we feel for the bad things we've done. This is a good thing, of course, for a couple of reasons. For one, the person who never feels bad about doing bad things, an especially unpleasant kind of person known as a sociopath, is not likely to stop himself from doing something dreadful when it suits him. But there is another reason. It's a very small step from feeling guilty to realizing that we feel guilty because we are guilty. And that is precisely what the story tells us. We're broken, true enough, but we're not simply malfunctioning. We're not machines that need to be fixed. We are transgressors who need to be forgiven. We've not merely made mistakes like getting our sums wrong when balancing accounts. No, we have sinned. And with sin comes guilt, and with guilt comes punishment. The sin must be answered for. It must be paid for in some way. Atoned for, if you will. Close quote. And that was from Greg Kogel's The Story of Reality. So the issue here is that something is wrong with the world. Okay, it's not the way it's supposed to be. All right, something is broken. Things are operating in reverse to the um, to the natural course of reality, where we're separated now from God, we were never supposed to be, but we are. Um, uh, we are separated from God, and we evidence that particular separation each and every day in disobedience to our Creator. So, so this is why we need Christ's rescue. This is why we need a Savior. Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton famously quipped this, the one doctrine of Christianity which is empirically verifiable 
is the fallenness of man. And isn't that so true? Uh, you know, we, uh, we see these tendencies in ourselves. We see these tendencies in others. I think, unfortunately, we're much more comfortable and much quicker to call these kind of tendencies out in other people than we are for um, introspection and to kind of see these things for ourselves and correct them in ourselves. But again, that's even a part of our fallen nature. So, you know, being humans living in the world, we're still going to have to wrestle with that nature even after we get um, quote unquote saved. But this is where the sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit comes in and helping us conform to the image of God's son, of the one who rescued us. So to be saved is to place your trust in the person and work of Jesus and to enthusiastically affirm these words of the Apostle John. I just want to read this to you. This is 1 John 5, 10 through 13. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. That's the Holy Spirit. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, here's a confusion that arises with some folks, even with some seasoned Christians, and it's it's this, the matter of Old Testament sacrifices and um, salvation. Now, I'm going to read a lengthy passage here from the book of Hebrews, and I just, I feel that you need this context, so that's why I'm going to read the whole thing um, to you, and so I'm going to try to go slowly so you can kind of get the point of this, and I will try to emphasize important words as I go along as well. So here is this passage, and if you want to follow along in a Bible, you can, uh, just so you can kind of see it as well. I'm reading from the King James Version, uh, but this is um, Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 1 through 18, okay? And this is meant, again, to bring out the issue of Old Testament sacrifices as it relates to the doctrine of salvation as taught in the New Testament. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the corners thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers, once purged, should have no more conscience of sins." But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance, again, made of sin every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure." Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering, and burnt offerings, and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. 
Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Again, that's Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. Now, I get it. All right. Look, most people fall asleep reading through the, you know, Pentateuchal passages that describe these sacrifices. So we're not going to take any time to explore them with any depth here, although I think they are, um, when properly understood, a lot more exciting than most people um, uh, see them, okay? as being, but anyway, that's for another time. Now, the drive-by treatment, because of that, that they're often given, I think it leads people to think that in Old Testament days, these sacrifices were the atonement for sin. But now, it's really important to understand just exactly how the writer of Hebrews understands the role of these sacrifices, because that is not, that is not, what the writer of Hebrews thought about those sacrifices. He says they can never take away sins. That doesn't mean they can never take away sins now. It means they couldn't take away sins then. They were never about the atonement for sin because it's clear that they could not satisfy the necessary conditions. And so now this raises another good question, and it's this one. So, why the law at all? What's the purpose of the law? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us some insight into that in Galatians chapter 3. All right, Galatians chapter 3, and here are verses 19 through 25. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had not been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. 
Now, in the passage we just read here, Paul gives two important reasons for the addition of the law. The first of those is transgressions or, you know, violation of God's order. In other words, sin, transgressions. And then the other one is teaching. Now, there are a couple different ways to parse what's really meant by transgressions here. Um, some are going to take this to mean, because remember it says, let me read the, the exact phrase to you. It says, uh, you know, basically Paul says, why? You know, what's the purpose of the law? He says it was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. So again, there are multiple ways to understand this. Some take this to mean that God actually added the law to produce or to increase transgressions. Well, to me, um, this doesn't seem to be the most natural reading of the text. But but let's kind of explore it a little bit. Proponents of this uh, take are going to argue on the basis of Romans 5.20, which reads, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Well, this is 5.20a. This is the first part of the verse. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, it sounds like well, the law came in so that the offense would get worse. You know, the, so that the sin would get worse. That's kind of what that sounds like. And so uh, they're gonna they're gonna take that and go back to the Galatians passage and see um, and see God here actually adding the law for the purpose of increasing these transgressions. Now, um, at face value, again, it really does seem to suggest that the law was added in order to cause sin to abound. But I think that perhaps that is not the correct way of understanding this. Think about this. God destroyed the entire world on the basis of the proliferation of sin. Okay, that's Genesis 6 through 8. So it's not really clear to me why God would design a, a system later on for, for his people, Israel, for his chosen people that was designed and purposed to multiply their sin. So to me, that makes little sense. Unless I'm misunderstanding the view, which I read quite a bit on it, I don't think I'm misunderstanding it. This is really how they would want to say that, uh, how they would want to, to construe this verse, to say that, indeed, God added this so that sin would increase. Whitmer's comments on this point, I think, are quite helpful um, in reading this passage more carefully. This is, um, I think, John Whitmer? Does that sound right? I think that's his name. Um uh, J.A. Whitmer, anyway, is how it is. Um, is how he says it here, uh, writing in the Bible Knowledge uh, Commentary. Quote: In is this statement in Romans five twenty a a purpose or a result clause? The coming of the Mosaic Law, um, which is clearly meant here in light of earlier verses, um, verses thirteen and fourteen, did result in the abounding of the trespass, which is the consequence of any law. But also in the light of verses 13 and 14 and 415, the Mosaic law came in so that, which is the purpose, abounding sin might be recognized as abounding trespass. Let me stop right there. So he's making a very um, careful distinction here between abounding um, um, trespass and the abounding of the trespass, so the recognition of it versus the actual abounding of it itself. So, in other words, you know, what's in mind here? Is it the result or is it the purpose? 
Okay, continuing on with Whitmer. The result was that where sin increased, or literally um, where it abounded, grace increased all the more. What a contrast. No matter how great human sin becomes, God's grace overflows beyond it and abundantly exceeds it. No wonder Paul wrote that God's grace is sufficient at 2 Corinthians 12.9. God's goal is that his grace might reign through righteousness, the righteousness of Christ provided for people to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Once again, Paul spoke of reigning in connection with life. In verse 17, those who received God's gift reign in life through Christ. And here God's grace is personified as reigning and bringing eternal life. Close quote. Now let me give you kind of just a a note here. I would personally caveat Whitmer's thoughts a little bit by saying it's not clearly a necessary consequence that transgressions um, increase upon the addition of a of a law. It could simply refer to the increased knowledge of the transgression. So the increased knowledge of it. So it's possible that he means it in this um, sense, but he doesn't really take time to clarify that. And um, let me just give you a quick personal anecdote that might help. Um, One time I received a ticket for running a no turn on red light. Uh, I failed to notice it after moving to a new town. Actually, the town I'm living in now. Uh, Shortly after I moved, I got this ticket. And again, it was a light that was no turn on red, but I didn't realize it. Now, the mere existence of this law had no bearing on whether or not I would do the crime. Okay, I mean, I would run the light one way or the other. Um, You know, just because of the fact that this law existed, I mean, didn't really change anything okay um it it simply identified it okay and it um it identified the law as such and it increased my awareness or knowledge of it so i'm not so sure that it's true um that uh, the offense itself is going to bound but not so much as as saying like the knowledge of the offense so anyway that's a, a little caveat there take that for what um for what you will so it does seem to me um, that, that Romans 5.20 is consistent in teaching that the law was added because of transgressions. In other words, sin needed to be recognized as such, but also kept in check. D.K. Campbell, writing in the same commentary, writes, um, It was given because of transgressions, that is, the law was given to be a means for checking sins. It served as a restrainer, of sins by showing them to be transgressions of God's law, which would incur his wrath. Cross-reference uh, 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11. Close quote. So, um, so based on what we read here, um, I think Mike Heiser kind of sums it up nicely when he says this, that Paul is consistent in both viewing the law as something positive, but also as something inadequate. Yeah, I think he makes a really, really good point there. That's a good way of putting it. Okay, but it was not only about transgressions. It was also a teacher. The law was um, not merely to restrain transgressions, but also to expose um, its gravity, to expose what the law meant for God's people. So while the blood of bulls and goats couldn't save it could serve as a gruesome and effective example and reminder that God is holy and that nothing less than utter purity 
would be allowed to broach his space. And again, we see time and again in the Old Testament when when that was not observed and was not heeded, um, there were consequences. But for us, this is really good news because it demonstrates, and get this, it demonstrates that keeping the law is impossible. It's impossible. And even the strictest Jewish um, sex, uh, that's S-E-C-T-S, um, the strictest Jewish um, sex who made much of the law could not follow it consistently. Check out Matthew twenty-three fifteen, or uh, also Matthew 12, 1 through 8, for example. So they couldn't keep it, okay? There was no hope of that. Grace is and always was necessary. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us, through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Look at, um, God loved you when you were dead. When you were dead. And what is meant by the term dead there is judicially unrighteous. You were unrighteous. You were unlovable. You were unfit for the kingdom. You were unfit for glory. You were unfit for him. Unfit for God. But he made provision for your salvation. And to claim it for yourself, this is amazing. To claim it for yourself, all you have to do is believe that he did. Just believe that he did and trust in him, again, to do what he says he will do. So based on a sound biblical doctrine of salvation, the question, how can I know I'm saved? It answers itself, really. You can know you're saved because you believe in the one who saved you. You cannot lose it. Get this, this is a very important point. You cannot lose it for a moral failure because you did not earn it in virtue of moral success. You cannot lose it for a moral failure because you did not earn it in virtue of a moral success. The simple answer is this. God did the work. And the real question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? All right, well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bible Nerd Podcast. I really, really appreciate you for tuning in yet another week and uh, for just allowing me to speak into your life and allowing me to to help you in your your journey and your walk with the Lord. I do have another podcast review I want to read to you this week. Let me say before I read that that I would really love for you to go leave a review. Um, 
wherever you listen to the podcast, uh, most places I can uh, actually see uh, if those uh, reviews come in. Um, anywhere uh, on the, any of the Apple podcast stores, uh, or, or if you're listening on CastBox, I can see those. Um, I think I get notifications on Spotify. Uh, anyway, so just wherever you are, um, leave a review, and I will do my best to to catch that and see that. That way I can read it here on the podcast. Those reviews really do help other people who come across the, the podcast to know that it's for them, to know that it's something that they would actually um, uh, enjoy. And uh, I'm getting low on reviews to read. I only have seven total for the podcast. I would love to get that up to to ten by next week, so that I have um, even uh, some more to read for the next uh, batch of episodes that goes out. So uh, I would love to get that up to just ten. I mean, that would be uh, you know great, uh, and then we can go from there. So uh, if you enjoy the podcast, if you listen to this podcast on a weekly basis. Uh, or you just found it and you think it's it's helpful, then I would encourage you to go leave a review to help others who uh, come across this podcast to understand or to know or to at least feel like it is something that would be beneficial to them. The more reviews, the better. Those really, really help. All right, so this particular um, uh, review says, Great Biblical Exegesis. Just came upon Steve's show and enjoying the entire backlog and uh, back catalog of shows. He truly stands for what the Bible states when it comes to creation. Rather than reading man's assumptions and theories into the text, keep it going. That's from William Wise Photo. Well, thank you, sir. I certainly. Uh, appreciate that. Again, so many of these comments, if you don't remember from a few weeks ago, I'm going back and reading some old comments, and so many of these are from when the show had a uh, particular focus on uh, issues of creation and creationism, creation science, things like that. And we do still talk about that from time to time here. Uh, I love science. I love uh, understanding how the topic of science works in conjunction with a biblical worldview. So that is part of what we discuss here. And um, uh, but so th- a lot of these comments are are commenting on the uh, work that I have done on creation for that very uh, reason. So I would love to, again, have your review. I'd love for you to share the podcast with somebody. The way that uh, we share podcasts these days is through word of mouth. The vast majority of people who find a podcast to listen to are getting that information from word of mouth referrals. So um you know, I, I'm wanting to build, you know, nerd nation here uh, with uh, with the podcast. I mean, I want to build a nation of Bible nerds who just really love, um, uh, you know, what we're doing and really uh, get the mission. They get the idea of 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 exploring God's world and God's word and, and understanding how they work together. And you know, um, this is just what we're trying to do: is uh, fall more in love with Jesus, learn how to defend uh, the Christian faith, and and ultimately just become people who dig into God's word and who love God's word. So if you know other people who either need to be like that or or are like that and they should be listening to this podcast, then please, please tell them. Please tell them and uh, they can come around here and get a little bit of uh, a Bible nerdology uh, going on. And I'm just really excited about that possibility. So, um, yeah, I would love uh, for you to to do that and share that. Well, look, at we will see you next week. I am all done for today. Thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye.